Chapter twenty three, part seven of Volume three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter twenty three. The Hundred Years' War. Charles the Sixth and the Dukes of Burgundy. Part seven. These successes of the King of England were so many reverses and perils for the Count of Armagnac. He had in his hands Paris, the King, and the Dauphin. In the people's eyes the responsibility of government and of events rested on his shoulders, and at one time he was doing nothing, at another he was unsuccessful in what he did. Whilst Henry V was becoming master of nearly all the towns of Normandy, the constable, with the King and his army, was besieging Senlis and he was obliged to raise the siege. The legates of Pope Martin V had set about establishing peace between the Burgundians and Armagnacs, as well as between France and England. They prepared, on the basis of the Treaty of Arras, a new treaty, with which a great part of the country, and even of the burgesses of Paris, showed themselves well pleased. But the constable had it rejected on the ground of its being adverse to the interests of the king and of France, and his friend, the Chancellor, Henry de Marle, declared that, if the king were disposed to sign it, he would have to seal it himself, for that, as for him, the chancellor, he certainly would not seal it. Bernard of Armagnac and his confidential friend, Tanneguy Duchatel, a Breton nobleman, provost of Paris, were hard and haughty. When a complaint was made to them of any violent procedure, they would answer, What business had you there? If it were the Burgundians, you would make no complaint." The Parisian populace was becoming every day more Burgundian. In the latter days of May, 1418, a plot was contrived for opening to the Burgundians one of the gates of Paris. Perronet Leclerc, son of a rich iron merchant having influence in the quarter of Saint-Germain-des-Prés, stole the keys from under the bolster of his father's bed. A troop of Burgundian men-at-arms came in, and they were immediately joined by a troop of Parisians. They spread over the city, shouting, Our Lady of Peace, hurrah for the King, hurrah for Burgundy. Let all who wish for peace take arms and follow us. The people swarmed from the houses and followed them accordingly. The Armagnacs were surprised and seized with alarm. Tanneguy Duchatel, a man of prompt and resolute spirit, ran to the Dauphins, wrapped him in his bedclothes, and carried him off to the Bastille, where he shut him up with several of his partisans. The Count of Armagnac, towards whose house the multitude thronged, left by a back door, and took refuge at a mason's, where he believed himself secure. In a few hours the Burgundians were masters of Paris. Their chief, the lord of Ile Adam, had the doors of the hostel of St. Paul broken in, and presented himself before the king. "'How fair is my cousin of Burgundy?' said Charles the Sixth. "'I have not seen him for some time.' That was all he said." He was set on horseback and marched through the streets. He showed no astonishment at anything. He had all but lost memory as well as reason, and no longer knew the difference between Armagnac and Burgundian. A devoted Burgundian, Sir Guy de Bar, was named Provost of Paris in the place of Tanneguy du Chatel. The mason with whom Bernard of Armagnac had taken refuge went and told the new provost that the constable was concealed at his house. Thither the provost hurried made the constable mount behind him, and carried him off to prison at the Châtelet, at the same time making honourable exertions to prevent massacre and plunder. 
But factions do not so soon give up either their vengeance or their hopes. On the 11th of June, 1418, hardly twelve days after Paris had fallen into the hands of the Burgundians, a body of sixteen hundred men issued from the Bastille, and rushed into the street Saint-Antoine, shouting, Hurrah for the King, the Dauphin, and the Count of Armagnac! They were Tanneguy Duchâtel and some of the chiefs of the Armagnacs who were attempting to regain Paris, where they had observed that the Burgundians were not numerous. Their attempt had no success, and merely gave the Burgundians the opportunity and the signal for a massacre of their enemies. The little band of Tanneguy Duchâtel was instantly repulsed, hemmed in, and forced to re-enter the Bastille with a loss of four hundred men. Tanneguy saw that he could make no defence there, so he hastily made his way out, taking the Dauphin with him to Melun. The massacre of the Armagnacs had already commenced on the previous evening. They were harried in the hostelries and houses, they were cut down with axes in the streets. On the night between the 12th and 13th of June a rumour spread about that there were bands of Armagnacs coming to deliver their friends in prison. "'They are at the Saint-Germain gate,' said some. "'No, it is the Saint-Marceau gate,' said others. The mob assembled and made a furious rush upon the prison gates. "'The city and burgesses will have no peace,' was the general saying, "'so long as there is one Armagnac left. Hurrah for peace! Hurrah for the Duke of Burgundy!' The provost of Paris, the lord of Ile Adam, and the principal Burgundian chieftains, galloped up with a thousand horse, and strove to pacify these madmen, numbering, it is said, some forty thousand. They were received with a shout of, A plague of your justice and pity! Accursed be he whosoever shall have pity on these traitors of Armagnacs! They are English, they are hounds. They had already made banners for the king of England, and would fain have planted them upon the gates of the city. They made us work for nothing, and when we asked for our due they said, You rascals! Haven't you a sou to buy a cord and go hang yourselves? In the devil's name speak no more of it. It will be of no use, whatever you say. The provost of Paris durst not oppose such fury as this. Do what you please, said he. The mob ran to look for the constable Armagnac and the chancellor de Marle in the palace tower, in which they had been shut up, and they were at once torn to pieces amidst ferocious rejoicings. All the prisons were ransacked and emptied. The prisoners who attempted resistance were smoked out. They were hurled down from the windows upon pikes held up to catch them. The massacre lasted from four o'clock in the morning to eleven. The common report was that fifteen hundred persons had perished in it. The account rendered to Parliament made the number eight hundred. The servants of the Duke of Burgundy mentioned to him no more than four hundred. It was not long before the fourteenth of July that he, with Queen Isabel, came back to the city, and he came with a sincere design, if not of punishing the cutthroats, at least of putting a stop to all massacre and pillage, but there is nothing more difficult than to suppress the consequences of a mischief of which you dare not attack the cause. One Bertrand, head of one of the companies of butchers, had been elected captain of Saint-Denis because he had saved the abbey from the rapacity of a noble Burgundian chieftain, Hector de Savus. The lord, to avenge himself, had the butcher assassinated. The burgesses went to the duke to demand that the assassin should be punished, and the duke, who durst neither assent nor refuse, could only partially cloak his weakness by imputing the crime to some disorderly youngsters whom he enabled to get away. On the 20th of August an angry mob collected in front of the Châtelet, shouting out that nobody would bring the Armagnacs to justice, and that they were every day being set at liberty on payment of money. The great and little Châtelet were stormed, and the prisoners massacred. 
The mob would have liked to serve the Bastille the same, but the Duke told the rioters that he would give the prisoners up to them if they would engage to conduct them to the Châtelet without doing them any harm, and, to win them over, he grasped the hand of their head man, who was none other than Capeluche, the city executioner. Scarcely had they arrived at the courtyard of the little Châtelet, when the prisoners were massacred there without any regard for the promise made to the Duke. He sent for the most distinguished burgesses, and consulted them as to what could be done to check such excesses, but they confined themselves to joining him in deploring them. He sent for the savages once more, and said to them, You would do far better to go and lay siege to Montferry, to drive off the king's enemies, who have come ravaging everything up to the Saint-Jacques gate, and preventing the harvest from being got in. Readily, they answered, only give us leaders. He gave them leaders, who led six thousand of them to Montferry. As soon as they were gone, Duke John had Capeluche and two of his chief accomplices brought to trial, and Capeluche was beheaded in the market-place by his own apprentice. But the gentry sent to the siege of Montelie did not take the place. They accused their leaders of having betrayed them, and returned to be a scourge to the neighborhood of Paris, everywhere saying that the Duke of Burgundy was the most irresolute man in the kingdom, and that if there were no nobles the war would be ended in a couple of months. Duke John set about negotiating with the Dauphin and getting him back to Paris. The Dauphin replied that he was quite ready to obey and serve his mother as a good son should, but that it would be more than he could stomach to go back to a city where so many crimes and so much tyranny had but lately been practiced. Terms of reconciliation were drawn up and signed on the 16th of September, 1418, at St. Mar, by the Queen, the Duke of Burgundy, and the Pope's legates, but the Dauphin refused to ratify them. The unpunished and long-continued massacres in Paris had redoubled his distrust toward the Duke of Burgundy. He had, moreover, just assumed the title of Regent of the Kingdom, and he had established at Portier a Parliament, of which Juvenal des Ursins was a member. He had promised the young Count of Armagnac to exact justice for his father's cruel death, and the old friends of the House of Orléans remained faithful to their enmities. The Duke of Burgundy had at one time to fight, and at another to negotiate with the Dauphin and the King of England, both at once, and always without success. The Dauphin and his council, though showing a little more discretion, were going on in the same alternative and unsatisfactory condition. Clearly neither France and England, nor the factions in France, had yet exhausted their passions or their powers, and the day of summary vengeance was nearer than that of real reconciliation. Nevertheless, Complicated, disturbed, and persistently resultless situations always end by becoming irksome to those who are entangled in them, and by inspiring a desire for extrication. The King of England, in spite of his successes and his pride, determined upon sending the Earl of Warwick to Provence, where the King and the Duke of Burgundy still were. A truce was concluded between the English and the Burgundians, and it was arranged that on the 30th of May, 1419, the two kings should meet between Mont and Melun and hold a conference for the purpose of trying to arrive at a peace. A few days before the time, Duke John set out from Provence with the King, Queen Isabel, and Princess Catherine, and repaired first of all to Pontoise, and then to the place fixed for the interview, on the borders of the Seine, near Melun, where two pavilions had been prepared, one for the King of France, and the other for the King of England. Charles the Sixth, being ill, remained at Pontoise. Queen Isabel, Princess Catherine, and the Duke of Burgundy arrived at the appointed spot. Henry V was already there. He went to meet the Queen, saluted her, 
took her hand, and embraced her and Madame Catherine as well. Duke John slightly bent his knee to the king, who raised him up and embraced him likewise. This solemn interview was succeeded by several others to which Princess Catherine did not come. The queen requested the king of England to state exactly what he proposed, and he demanded the execution of the Treaty of Bretigny, the cession of Normandy, and the absolute sovereignty, without any bond of vassalage, of whatever should be ceded by the treaty. A short discussion ensued upon some secondary questions. There appeared to be no distant probability of an understanding. The English believed that they saw an inclination on the Duke of Burgundy's part, not to hasten to a conclusion, and to obtain better conditions from King Henry by making him apprehensive of a reconciliation with the Dauphin. Henry proposed to him, for the purpose of ending everything, a conference between themselves alone, and it took place on the 3rd of June. "'Cousin,' said the king to the duke, "'we wish you to know that we will have your king's daughter, and all that we have demanded with her, else we will thrust him out of his kingdom, and you too.' "'Sir,' answered the duke, "'you speak according to your pleasure, but before thrusting my lord and myself from the kingdom you will have what will tire you, we will make no doubt, and you will have enough to do to keep yourself in your own island.' Between two princes so proud there was little probability of an understanding, and they parted with no other result than mutual displeasure. Some days before, on the 14th of May, 1419, a truce of three months had been concluded between the Dauphin and the Duke of Burgundy, and was to lead to a conference also between these two princes. It did not commence before the 8th of July. During this interval, Duke John had submitted for the mature deliberation of his council the question whether it were better to grant the English demands, or become reconciled to the Dauphin. Amongst his official counsellors opinions were divided, but in his privacy the Lady of Jack, whom he loved and trusted mightily, and Philip Jossequin, who had been at first his chamber attendant, and afterwards custodian of his jewels and of his privy seal, strongly urged him to make peace with the Dauphin and the Pope's fresh legate, the Bishop of Lannes, added his exhortations to these home influences. There had been fitted up at a league's distance from Melon, on the embankment of the ponds of Ver, a summer-house of branches and leaves, hung with drapery and silken stuffs, and there the first interview between the two princes took place. The Dauphin left in displeasure. He had found the Duke of Burgundy haughty and headstrong. Already the old servants of the late Duke of Orléans, impelled by their thirst for vengeance, were saying out loud that the matter should be decided by arms, when the lady of Jacques went after the Dauphin, who from infancy had also been very much attached to her, and she, going backwards and forwards between the two princes, was so affectionate and persuasive with both that she prevailed upon them to meet again, and to sincerely wish for an understanding. The next day but one they returned to the place of meeting, attended each of them by a large body of men-at-arms. They advanced towards one another with ten men only, and dismounted. The Duke of Burgundy went on bended knee. The Dauphin took him by the hand, embraced him, and would have raised him up. "'No, my lord,' said the Duke, "'I know how I ought to address you.' The Dauphin assured him that he forgave every offence, if indeed he had received any, and added, "'Cousin, if in the proposed treaty between us there be aught which is not to your liking, we desire that you amend it.' and henceforth we will desire all that you shall desire. Make no doubt of it. They conversed for some time with every appearance of cordiality, and the treaty was signed. It was really a treaty of reconciliation, in which, 
without dwelling upon the suspicions and imaginings which have been engendered in the hearts of ourselves and many of our officers, and have hindered us from acting with concord in the great matters of my lord the king and his kingdom, and resisting the damnable attempts of his and our old enemies, the two princes made mutual promises, each in language suitable to their rank and connection, to love one another, support one another, and serve one another mutually, as good and loyal relatives, and bade all their servants, if they saw any hindrance thereto, to give them notice thereof, according to their bounden duty. The treaty was signed by all the men of note belonging to the houses of both princes, and the crowd which surrounded them shouted, Noel, and invoked curses on whosoever should be minded henceforth to take up arms again in this damnable quarrel. When the Dauphin went away, the Duke insisted upon holding his stirrup, and they parted with every demonstration of amity. The Dauphin returned to Touraine, and the Duke to Pontoise, to be near the King, who by letters of July 19th confirmed the treaty, enjoined general forgetfulness of the past, and ordained that all war should cease, save against the English. There was universal and sincere joy. The peace fulfilled the requirements, at the same time, of the public welfare and of national feeling. It was the only means of re-establishing order at home, and driving from the kingdom the foreigner who aspired to conquer it. Only the friends of the Duke of Orléans, and of the Count of Armagnac, one assassinated twelve years before, and the other massacred but lately, remained sad and angry at not having yet been able to obtain either justice or vengeance, but they maintained reserve and silence. They were not long in once more finding for mistrust and murmuring grounds, or pretext which a portion of the public showed a disposition to take up. The Duke of Burgundy had made haste to publish his ratification of the Treaty of Reconciliation. The Dauphin had let his wait. The Parisians were astonished not to see either the Dauphin or the Duke of Burgundy coming back within their walls, and at being, as it were, forgotten and deserted amidst the universal making up. They complained that no armed force was being collected to oppose the English, and that there was an appearance of flying before them, leaving open to them Paris, in which, at this time, there was no captain of renown. They were still more troubled when, on the twenty-ninth of July, they saw the arrival, at the Saint-Denis gate, of a multitude of disconsolate fugitives, some wounded, and others dropping from hunger, thirst, and fatigue. When they were asked who they were, and what was the reason of their desperate condition, "'We are from Pontoise,' they said. "'The English took the town this morning. They killed or wounded all before them. Happy he, whosoever could escape from their hands!' Never were Saracens so cruel to Christians as yonder folk are. It was a real fact. The King of England, disquieted at the reconciliation between the Duke of Burgundy and the Dauphin, and at the ill success of his own proposals at the conference of the 30th of May preceding, had vigorously resumed the war, in order to give both the reunited French factions a taste of his resolution and power. He had suddenly attacked and carried Pontoise, where the command was in the hands of the Lord of Ile Adam one of the most valiant Burgundian officers. Eel Adam, surprised and lacking sufficient force, had made a feeble resistance. There was no sign of an active union on the part of the two French factions for the purpose of giving the English battle. Duke John, who had fallen back upon Troy, sent order upon order for his vassals from Burgundy, but they did not come up. Public alarm and distrust were day by day becoming stronger. Duke John, it was said, was still keeping up secret communications with the seditions in Paris and with the King of England. Why did he not act with more energy against this latter, the common enemy? 
The two princes in their conference of July 9th, near Mellon, had promised to meet again. A fresh interview appeared necessary in order to give efficacy to their reconciliation. Duke John was very pressing for the Dauphin to go to Troy, where the king and queen happened to be. The Dauphin on his side was earnestly solicited by the most considerable burgesses of Paris to get this interview over, in order to ensure the execution of the Treaty of Peace, which had been sworn with the Duke of Burgundy. The Dauphin showed a disposition to listen to these entreaties. He advanced as far as Montereau in order to be ready to meet Duke John as soon as a place of meeting should be fixed. End of chapter 23, part 7